The heart of this message has to do with repentance and God's marvelous and amazing response to our repentance. And I find this really personally challenging because the way that I deal with conflict and my own sin is, is not always biblical. Um, my family knows that when I'm in an argument with somebody and I'm losing and it's clear that I'm wrong, that my response is, okay, I've lost this, so I just say, sorry, 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 can we just move on? I just want to get it over with. I've, it's my fault. I take it, all of it, 100% me. Let's move on. And there's not a whole lot of uh, exploration of the depths of, of sin and any of that. So it's a great challenge for me personally. And uh, I trust it will be a challenge for you as well. Because as God's word is, <coughs> is proclaimed to us, uh, he's in the business of changing our hearts. So let's take a moment now and just pray together before we start. Lord, I just pray that we would recognize, Lord, from your word, the depth of the mess that we are in as a result of sin. And yet, at the same time, Lord, I pray that as we understand the depth of your love and the incredible benefits of being made right with you, the joy of having our hearts knitted with yours, that we would, being on the right side of genuine repentance, be blessed by you because of your your gracious, amazing, and kind response to a heart that has been changed and turned back to you. May, that, may we count ourselves among that, those this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's easy to find the context of our verse this morning. It's in the title of Psalm 51. It's a, song, a, a psalm that David has, has written. It's entirely a prayer to the Lord. And it's in response to... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba, just to be clear, unlike last week when we weren't quite sure where the, the psalm fit, this one is obvious. So we need to start in Second Samuel uh, chapter 11, and it may be a story you're familiar with, but it's always helpful to review what God's word says and to see really how, how desperately David needed the Lord. Uh, so there's David on the roof of the palace, and we're not going to read all of chapter 11, but in, in a quick summary, David's wandering around in his palace and sees a beautiful woman bathing. When I first read that, I was thinking the swimsuit kind of bathing. I doubt that's what it was. Uh, so he was basically being a peeping Tom, noticed this woman, said, wow, she's really beautiful. I want her. And uh, so he sends someone to inquire about who this woman is, comes back and says, well, that's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, one of your uh, fine men of, in battle. And he said, oh, I still want her. And so he sent for her, uh, he slept with her, got her pregnant, and uh, then had another mess on his hands and had to figure out how to cover that up. So then he uh, tried to manipulate things to get Uriah to, to come back and, and spend time with his wife so that this pregnancy would be his fault, at least according to everyone else. Um, that didn't work because Uriah was dressed for battle and ready to go to the field, and he slept outside and wouldn't even be with his wife. So he said, well, I'll just get him drunk, and then I'll really get this guy to, to warm up back up to his wife. And that didn't work either. And so uh, he said, well, I still have much to cover up. I know what I'll do. I'll send him back to the battlefield with a note in his hand telling his commander to withdraw from him and have him be killed by the sword. And that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what happened to Uriah. And so David had to compound his sin with more sin because he was stuck. And so then he also had to compound that by being completely deceptive and trying everything he could in his power to cover up what he had done. And so there's an obviously a great deal of guilt, 
But David apparently was willing to move forward the rest of his life with this kind of deception and the sin in his life not being dealt with. Um, And then God intervened. And praise God that he does that. He did it for David and he'll do it for us. He, uh, Nathan comes by the, by the hand of God to Nathan, to, uh, David and says, I have a story for you. It's a hypothetical one. There's a man who, uh, was going to put a feast on. He's a rich man. He's putting on a feast for his friends and he has hundreds of goats and sheep in the field. And rather than take one of them, he stole one from a neighbor, a poor man and butchered that and, and did his celebration. And, and David of course is outraged and incensed and and realizes just how pitiful that man must be. And then we pick up what Nathan had to, to say to David in, in, uh, in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, after all I have done for you, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then the pivotal moment, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed that you, where you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. What does it mean? It's a whole lot more than saying, I'm sorry, 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 like I was talking about before. And it starts with understanding the nature of God himself. And uh, at the very beginning of this passage, David says, have mercy on me, O God. And so he immediately appeals to God's mercy and his love for him. And at the same time, he's acknowledging and recognizing God's justice and his, the truth of who he is. Look at verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So what David is saying is that my repentance is required because of the, grace, because of the truth and blamelessness of God. I have to respond this way because God's ways are good and God is just and fair. And if I do not, then I am making him out to be a liar. It's almost like he's saying, you know, if I don't repent, if I don't respond to God, I'm saying that his ways are not good. I'm saying that he, it is not necessary for me to be made right with him because he is not just. And that is not the heart of God. That is not the truth. It may be how we feel sometimes. It might have been where David's heart was before, at, in the time uh, of just before these events that, um, that we're reading now, but back when he was dealing with Bathsheba. But the truth is that God's ways are good and just, and it's important for us to recognize that before we go one step further. Then he appeals to God and his mercy and asks him to respond to him in, in his unfailing love. And he also, also in this process of repentance, is understanding the nature of sin itself. And in this passage, David declares the truth about sin on both sides of the same coin. He he states that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. That we are personally accountable, but that we we also have a sin nature. Uh, In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me he owns it 
He says, this was me. I did it. I'm guilty. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's also not just talking about specific sins in his life, although he is. He's also saying, I have a sin nature. I have a problem with being sinful. I have been that way since birth. Now, you can blame God all you want for that, but it's certainly not true. Adam, the sin of Adam has been passed on in all generations, including to us. And so we are both guilty by our own choices and by the nature that we have inherited. And it's also a reminder, by the way, in this prayer that David is offering, that although he sinned horribly against Uriah and against Bathsheba, he also sinned against the Lord and he deals with God directly and personally throughout this entire psalm. And that's a good thing for us to remember as well. Sometimes we work on reconciliation with one another and we leave God completely out of it. And the truth is, whenever we are sinning against one another, we're also sinning against the Lord. And as a part of this process of understanding what it means to repent, David understands the consequences of sin. He understands it very well personally. From chapter 12, uh, we read on in First Samuel that, or Second Samuel that, uh, David prayed to the Lord and said, don't, don't take my son from me. And he fasted and was, was adamant before the Lord and his son died. And so there was a direct consequence of his personal and earthly sin right there in his life that he experienced. It doesn't always work that way. We don't always pay the, the earthly penalty for our own sins. And in fact, sometimes we pay a, a earthly penalty for just being in a sinful world. Think about David's son. He never did anything. He died a few days after birth. That's the nature of humanity. That's the experience that we have. We live in a messed up, deeply fallen world that is full of sickness and disease and death and failure. And our life is full of sorrow. It's full of suffering. It's full of sadness. It's the nature of the life we're in as, as my friend Steve says so often, we got kicked out of paradise. Everything since then has been hard. And that is absolutely true. But there's also an eternal consequence to, this, to our sin. And David recognizes that as well. You have to dig a little to find it. But in verses 10, 11, and 12, David prays to the Lord for several specific blessings. I want you to imagine for a moment that God answered none of them not one, or that, they were, that none of those promises were applicable to him. And, and look at what these verses say to us about the human condition as a result of our sin. I have an unclean heart, an unright spirit. I am cast away from the presence of God, and I do not have his Holy Spirit within me or around me. There is no salvation, no joy, and no strength from God. That is that those are the eternal consequences of sin. No joy, no salvation, no presence of God in, in our lives whatsoever. Now that is absolutely true for everyone who has not received Christ. And for those of us who do know him, it doesn't mean that God is going to walk away from us and take his Holy Spirit back away if, if, when we sin. That's not what this is referring to. He's been promised to us for eternity. But it certainly does mean that the joy of our lives can just be so fleeting. And that's really such a, a truth of our lives 
that our own sin causes us to lose our joy in our walk with God, and that we lose our strength, we're discouraged, we're easily uh, confounded by the failures of our own life. So we're experiencing some of the, the, the uh, consequences of sin now, and, and we will certainly be faced with consequences of sin in eternity. Recognizing these things as a part of his repentance, David prays a prayer of confession. He says, against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The simple takeaway from that is that how often is it that we're dealing with a difficulty, a a failure of our own making, and we talk to ourselves, and we talk to our friends, and we write it in our diaries, and we blog it, and we tell everybody how messed up we are, and the one thing we don't do is pray. We don't take our confession to the Lord. It's just so easy to do. He's the one that's been offended. He's the one that needs our, our interaction with Him. This is about us and God. And that's the, child, that's the, the, the calling for us in, a, in this process of repentance is to confess to the Lord that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we work through the process of understanding the, the implication of that, we are called to deal with God as a result of it. David then goes on to pray prayers of specifically trusting in God for his deliverance and for his salvation. In this passage, we see it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 7, verse 9, 10, and 14. Have mercy on me, God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me whiter than snow. God, you have to do this. Purge me. Cleanse me. Create in me a clean heart. God, you have to do this. I can't do any of it. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me, strengthen me by your spirit. All of these, every single one, are works of God. They are not works of me. This is not about, oh God, I'm really sorry, please give me another chance. That's kind of how human beings deal with our failure so often. Um, I happen to be a golfer, and that's called a mulligan. A chance to take a shot over again that was really, really terrible. Um, A couple weeks ago when I was with the uh, McDonald family, we were playing a lot of mulligans when we were in the uh, miniature golf world. And that next try was never any better than the last one. Um, And so that is not at all what God is saying here. And by the way, if you need... Please don't be offended. I'm sure Mike and his family will listen to this. If you need any, if there's any doubt in your mind about the sinful nature of humanity, go play miniature golf with three uh, 11-year-old boys. All right, and look at the competition that is created and the the challenge of being of just getting so darn frustrated with losing to your brother that you just can't stand it. That is just a great example of the fallen nature of humanity. Sorry, golf doesn't always have biblical benefits, but in here, maybe it does. In all of this, we are being hinted at the fact that God needs to do the work of salvation. And then it's made crystal clear, starting last week in Psalm 22, and in the scriptures in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and our hope. He is the one who fulfills all of these things. If you remember from last week, we looked at Psalm 22, and in the middle of David's lament about his pain and agony, he was prophesying, maybe unknowingly, 
that the Messiah would someday experience all of this suffering and would in fact be the atonement for our sins. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that perfectly on the cross when he gave his life uh, for our benefit. I want to go back to 2 Corinthians 5. We touched it last week and want to spend just a moment on it this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. And this passage gives us two things. One is a glimpse into the identity that we have as followers of Christ. But the other is what the, the specific work that Christ accomplished on our behalf that brings us into that new identity. It says, therefore, and this is Paul teaching to the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in God, Christ was reconciling himself to the world, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on our behalf, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The complete and total response of repentance is possible. It's possible only because of the work of Christ. This is not God just saying, I forgive you, without reason. It's because Christ fulfilled and, and took on the penalty for our sin on the cross. And that is, then calls us to repentance. So it's much more than just this idea of, of forgiving one another. And it now brings us to the real heart of this message, which is God's gracious and unbelievable and amazing response to genuine repentance. If you, in the top of your bulletin, right under, under the title of the message, it says, May we embrace God's marvelous and gracious response to our genuine repentance. May we embrace His marvelous and gracious response to our genuine repentance. And I'm going to start by telling you that God responds to repentance differently than any of us have ever experienced by anyone else at any time. God does not respond to our repentance the way we respond to one another. As much as we try, we are not able to respond the way God responds. You know, when we sin against people, we're sinning against sinners. We're sinning against people who are emotional and who are struggling with their own walk with God. And so there's a whole set of different dynamics that we have to deal with. But God doesn't need to cool off when we sin against him. God does not need to be struggling with this idea that his feelings have been hurt. And that he's, he's suffering and struggling because of our sin. And, God, and we do not need to be afraid that our sin will somehow cause God to be sinful towards us. And praise God for that. Because that's, you know, that's the experience of the human condition. Any of you who are married, you know it. You know when you sin, you're going to create sin. It usually happens unless your, your spouse is an amazing saint and uh, is able to respond without, without the, the least bit of unkindness or frustration in their lives. We have to move beyond the human response to re- repentance and realize what God is doing. And we see that in David, he is appealing to God to bless him. 
to have mercy on him, to offer him grace, and to give him an incredible life. His prayer that Dave brought to life is so emotional, but it's also so, it's so amazing in its, in its boldness to, have, to ask God for so, so many amazing things. So let's look at what God does in his response. And we see it starting in verse 10. It's really verses 10 through 12 um, that we see how what God is able and willing to do. When, he's, when, when David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, he is doing this more than just as a hopeful prayer. It's also talking about what God has already done. As a man who is following God, he knows that his heart has been made clean. And for any of us who have followed Christ in our, in our lives, we have already been gifted with a clean and new heart. And that's, I tell you, that's a hard thing to understand. It's hard to embrace that we have, we are new creations. It's hard because we're still in the flesh, right? The flesh is still nasty. The flesh is still hungry and has tremendous appetites. But within us dwells the Holy Spirit of God and a new creation. And we have got to, we have got to embrace that identity because it's true. Because it's who we are. It's the part of us that will last for all eternity. Our flesh is going to die and fail. That's, that's a given. But our our, who we are lives forever when we are made right with Christ. And having a sense of, a, of a, being centered in an identity is really a really helpful thing for us to deal with the challenges of life going forward. Now, my mother, my mother, bless her, had one of the most firm identities of anyone that I've ever known. Um, well, she went to, to music school, and she was about 19 years old, went off to Chicago, a very prestigious school. And... Uh, would tell this story over and over again. You know, yes, you've told the story, Mom, but then we'd let her tell it. And it was that when she was about 19, she went to the campus on a Saturday wearing her blue jeans. And, you know, that was kind of like, well, I don't know that it was against any rules, but that's not how uh, young ladies dressed at that time in the early 1950s. Ran into one of her professors, and her professor looked at her very sternly and said, Miss Zimmerman, do you not know who you are? And she was just taken aback by this, by this uh, confrontation. And she said, no, that's not who I am. And the rest of her life, my mother never wore blue jeans ever again. I, and I'm not kidding. And she would dress up as fine as you can to go to church, to go shopping. When she was in and out of the hospital for 30 years, the last 30 years of her life. And as she would get ready to go to the hospital, she would get her hair done. It's like, no, I am not going to look like a corpse until I'm, I'm gone. I, I am going to, look, I'm going to look good. And that was her identity. It was as clear as could be. Now, you can argue whether that's the perfect identity to have, but that's who she was, and she knew who she was. And as believers, we would do well to hold tight and hold firm to the identity of being made new in Christ. Because the enemy is at work to constantly tell us, no, that's not who you are. He's always saying to us, you are still pitiful. You are still a beggar by the side of the road. And maybe nobody's going to come along to help you. You are hopeless, especially when we've sinned. You are hopeless. Aren't you so pathetic? What is wrong with you? You know that you hear those voices. I hear them all the time. It's like you have no business approaching God 
because you are so messed up. It's that, it's that poking and prodding and, and lying to us about who we are in Christ. And every time we hear that, there's this voice saying, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. You are no different. Holy Spirit within you, that it doesn't even make sense. There's no way because of, because of how sinful you are. So we need this promise of God. We need this, this, uh, this truth that God has created within us a clean heart that we can, be, we can approach Him in confidence and that we can be alive in Him even now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And then in verse 21, it's, it's so outrageous, I, it's hard to read. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, that's so, that's just sounds wrong, but it's true. In Christ, we become his righteousness. We bear fruit for eternity and for the kingdom of God. And it's who God made us to be. And it's who he wants us to start acting like. And it's really a joyful and, a, and an amazing thing to, to hold that close to us. And it's a great, remarkable fruit of genuine repentance. He's changing us from the inside out. I know we're still in the flesh. Our flesh has more desires and there's more sin there than we can possibly imagine. But we've been reborn. We've been made new. We have been declared by God to be His righteousness. We have a new identity even though we're walking in the flesh. You know, the Christian identity is not, it's not in what we do. It's just not. It's not, in, it's not in the good things we do. I love being a rocket scientist and showing off to all the McDonald family and pointing out rockets and I know a couple of astronauts and pretending like I'm somebody important, whatever. That's great. That is not who I am. That's not who I am at all. And similarly, I know that I'm still sinning before the Lord, but that isn't who I am either. I am alive in Christ. That's who I am. And so, you know what? David knew this in his prayer. He, this is not a kingly prayer of power in, in, in what Dave brought to life here. This is a prayer of a broken man who was not claiming his kingship. He was not uh, claiming the power of his position. He was simply broken before the Lord. So let's look at a couple more things. Oh, I want to say one more thing before I move on. You know what? One of the other things about this, this presence of God, this promise of him in our lives, how, how amazing it is uh, it, from verse 11. The author, uh, his pr- ask me not away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Well, think about those promises for just a moment. Don't ask me away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, we know from the scriptures, the the author of Hebrews is, is encouraging us in our walk with God to be content because God promised, now scripture quoting scripture, God promised that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Paul in Ephesians describes the Holy Spirit within us as a promise and a seal for all of eternity. This is not the coming and going of God's favor on our lives anymore as we've come to become new creations. You know, God does a lot of things to discipline his children. He does it in a lot of different ways. And some of them are very harsh and some of them are very hard. But there is one thing he never does. He does not send us to our room. He does not send us away from him. Now, I, I'm an extrovert, and my parents used to do that all the time, and it was torture. I had to be an hour by myself. It was 
awful. I just thought I was going to die. I was so, and, and they knew that, you know, you, you could send a, an introvert child to their room and they're like, oh, that's good. Thank you. Just don't send me to the party. Right? But God does not send us out of his, pre, uh, out of, from his presence and he does not leave us. And that is such a great joy and such a blessing and such a promise of his response to our genuine repentance. He also, also brings us salvation, joy, and strength. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. And of all the prayers in Psalm 51, this one I think hits home the most for so many of us because it's so easy to lose the joy of our salvation and it's so easy to feel that we have no strength and no courage uh, in, our, in Christ and even just in our own day-to-day life. And it would be a real challenge for me to tell you exactly how it is that God will restore to you the joy of your salvation. People have written entire books on it, and I don't want to go there but to tell you perhaps three things very briefly this morning about the restoration of joy. And it somewhat comes from experience as well. And the first one is to ask for joy. Again, coming to the Lord and saying, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. How often do we go around moping and saying, I just am so not happy I'm, my joy is gone, and we're dealing and we're telling others. But how often are we wrestling with God about this? Oh, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I, I want us to be like, like Jacob was. God, I am not letting you go until you bless me. At the, at the risk of my own body, where God you know, actually kind of maimed Jacob and gave him a limp for the rest of his life he did bless Jacob he did Jacob did not let go of God until he was blessed and I would urge us to do this with the Lord I know that the Christian life can be dry I know that we struggle David was in in turmoil in agony as we heard this morning and yet he says restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me he's asking god to restore him to bring him to power and to to life again in christ and it is it is a marvelous thing and but we need to be persistent with god about this and we need to face him and we need to be uh, asking and begging god the second the second principle i personally experience and, and often implement in my life joy is contagious so i want to be around people that I can catch it from, if you know what I mean. If I, no no offense to you grumpy people, (laughs) but I would rather not spend time with you because it might make me grumpy. Because that's contagious as well. Uh, And I know I'm grumpy too. It's nothing personal. But I, I am drawn to people whose face and countenance is always filled with God's joy and and, and hope even in the midst of their biggest trials. And so may we be that to one another. And I urge you to cling to one another in this, that you might find the joy of the Lord in the body of Christ. That's been my experience the last few months in the, just the challenges of, of li- living a life where I, I don't know what it's going to be like to, to not have my wife with me anymore. But a couple weeks ago... 
uh, we were all together at a wedding, and we being some family friends, John and Kaylee were the folks, the young couple that are living with me. Uh, her, Kaylee's mom was best friends with my wife in college, and so we, her big brother got married, and we all went to Colorado and uh, enjoyed a beautiful wedding. And in that wedding, we were all together, of course, one person missing, and so there were some tears of sorrow, but at the very end of the at the of the wedding celebration, there was kind of a dance. We we weren't really dancing. We just this group of people just kind of found each other, and we were just in a big circle. And it was more like arms around one another and holding hands. And there were there were some tears, but it was it was one of the most joyful moments I can remember in my life. Looking around these people who I have known for. 35 years or more, and I've known these young people since the day they were born, and we were together, and we were celebrating God's goodness, and it was almost like we could wink at each other a little bit and go, we're going to be all right. This is good. God is so good, and his, we are not done with the joy of the Lord in our lives. It was a marvelous and joyful experience, and one that I'll treasure really the rest of my life. And then the third one, the third principle is to move into verses 13 through 15 and look at what David did in response to God's, uh, in response to his own brokenness and what, what he says he will do when God restored him. Starting in verse 15, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David says, God, bless me, and I will tell everybody about your goodness and kindness. I, I, will, I will. And he's doing it in the, he's writing it down. He's doing it literally in the, in the psalm he's writing here. You know, it's, so, it's very much like what Philemon says about sharing our faith. When he says, be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. You know, it seems backwards. Be, be about proclaiming the goodness of God and you'll understand the goodness of God. Right? It's not the other way around. You know, emotions, we are so emotional. We're so fickle. If we waited to proclaim God's goodness until we felt like we understood everything, we might never open our mouths. And David is saying, I will proclaim the goodness of God. I mean, think about where his head is at as he's writing this. His son has just died. His, his sin is so before him that he's completely broken by it. And here he's saying, God... I'll proclaim you. Your ways are good. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. You're righteous and good. I will praise you. And you know what? We need to do that. When someone near us dies, we need to proclaim God's goodness and favor. I know, it's, I know how hard that is. But that's the nature of God's business. He is good. Our life is hard. The flesh is stinky. But God is good. And that's what we're called to. We are proclaiming the goodness of God's work. It was just like last week when we were looking at Psalm 22. You know, uh, David is saying, I will proclaim that he has done it. Right in the middle of his own lament about how miserable life is. As he progressed through that, at the very end, he says, I will tell everyone who will listen. He has done it. God has moved, he has moved into this proclamation and it's a, it's a marvelous thing and it's a gift from God. And may we take that gift and may we proclaim it to be true to anyone who will listen.
we also get a glimpse of, uh, of spiritual growth and humility in God's response to David's repentance. One of the things, I, how I equate that to, this is verses 16 and 17, by the way. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You know what? God, David's heart was broken when he wrote that. And so my conclusion is repentance is its own reward. Humility, brokenness, is the reward that God gives us. Because when we are finished with it, we are humble where we ought to be. And God says, that is a heart I don't despise. It's what I want. That's the sacrifice I'm asking of you. I don't want you to be more religious. I want you to be more humble. And you, you bring me these sacrifices. How many times do we read this in the scriptures about you bring me these sacrifices and they smell bad to me. I don't want them. And that's what God is saying here. And David's sacrifice of humility is pleasing to God. God is delighting. He's delighting in David as, as these words are written. And finally, the last couple of verses here. Life with God's people. They almost seem out of place, but if you just look at it for a moment, what we see is, is, a, is a wonderful promise here. It says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, then in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. So, a couple observations here. One is that David understands that his sin was putting his people at risk. He is now he is now petitioning God for his blessing on the people of God, on Jerusalem and on Zion, and he wants to them to be right as well. He said he's saying that the whole body can be affected by the spiritual condition of a leader. In this case, God's people are going to be blessed by the repentance of God's leader. And you know what? All, all leaders would do well to hear that. Uh, it, it makes no sense to pray for your people if you're not broken and contrite before God yourself. And so God's, God's promise to, to his people is, being, is reflected here in how David is interacting with, with, uh, with God about the, the whole nation uh, that's before him. And then secondly, you see that God is now talking about being pleased with these very sacrifices that a moment ago he said he wasn't pleased with. And it's all because of the order of things. God, the good works and sacrifices of our lives flow out of repentance. They, are, they flow out of being made right with God. They do not cause us to be right with God. They can't save us. They don't happen in advance of repentance. They are the natural fruit of a repentant heart. So if you've not trusted in Christ for your salvation, perhaps you've spent your whole life trying to do good works or, or bring some kind of sacrifice to God, the, the works that we're talking about here will never save you. And these, these promises, these marvelous and, and gracious responses of God, they don't apply to you. Not yet. You need to repent and trust in Christ. Trust in the, the salvation He offers us because of the sacrifice He made on the cross to appease the wrath of God. Our repentance is what starts this process. It's the genuine repentance. It's the understanding of God's character, His nature, understanding who we are and how desperate we, we are and how much we need Him. And I hope, I hope too that the story from 2 Samuel 
will put aside this ridiculous thing that all of us have said, which is, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am. Yeah, you don't know. I've sinned a lot. I'm the worst. God's met his match in me. It's like, yeah, right. Why don't you compare yourself to this story and see how, you, how it comes out? That's kind of the part, point of it as well. God is well acquainted with our failures. And he has overcome far worse than whatever it is that we've dealt with in our lives. That's the whole point of the cross. It's that great leveling ground at the foot of the cross. We are all desperately needy. We are all in need of this Savior. And so your sin is no different than David's and no worse than anyone else's. It's also no better than anyone else's, by the way, either. And then for Christians, the challenge is that we might receive eternal life and not just look at it as moving from the naughty list to the nice list and then just waiting for Christmas. You know, that's, that's kind of how sometimes we, we skip the whole idea of living out the rest of our lives to the glory of God because we're just, oh, I'm saved, I'm good. And uh, somewhere in the distant future, I know I'll be on that list at the pearly gates and I'm getting in and, you know, I'm good until then. I'm sort of just treading water. And uh, God is saying, no, I, I have... I have something for you now. You are a new creation with a new identity made for new purposes. You are adopted as a child of God and you're called to his table. You are not sitting outside hoping for scraps and crumbs from the table. God is eager to restore your joy as his adopted child and to strengthen you for the work that he has for you today. And then as we do this, we're going to grow more and more in appreciation for God as he calls us to give him a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. And even our good works then become works of praise as we thank him and spend the rest of our life being grateful to the Lord. So hopefully these things are, uh, will help us to be quick to repent, to be complete in our, our idea of repentance, and to keep short accounts. You know, God is embracing, he, he is calling us to embrace the marvelous and gracious response that he's giving us to our genuine repentance. Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of your Son, and because of his incredible sacrifice for our sakes, create in us clean hearts and make our spirits right with yours. I thank you that we are never far from you. I thank you that you stick closer to us than a brother by your Holy Spirit. Draw us unto repentance, whether for the first time with our whole lives or for the thousandth time with the sin that still is in our flesh, that the joy of your salvation would be restored to us and that we would be strengthened by your willing and powerful spirit for the work that you have at hand. Thank you for the hope we have in you because of the work you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.